This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Ted Ross. Our guest today is the CIO for the City of Los Angeles and the General Manager of the Information Technology Agency. His department delivers enterprise IT services to 48,000 employees across 41 city departments and over 4 million residents. Ted oversees a $105 million budget. So, Ted, first off, it is an honor to have you on the show today, and, and thank you for joining us. It's absolutely my pleasure. So, Ted, as you know, our show is about leaders and legends, which you are both. (laughs) But can you describe your leadership style? You know, I'm a strong believer in situational leadership. I firm believe that you got to match your leadership style to the readiness of the staff. But with that being said, I think quite often I'm democratic. I work with IT professionals. I work with elected leaders. I work with knowledge workers. And I think in my experience, it's really important to engage them. You got to listen to them. You got to explain the decisions you make. And you'll find that when they make decisions on their own, and a lot of them will be making decisions outside of my purview, they'll often end up making the right decisions and decisions I could support. Of course, it's not always the best approach. I think we've all seen in COVID that at times we've had to be authoritative, right? When it comes to health and safety, balancing it with maintaining operations, et cetera or even just being strategic. I think if left on its own, government IT won't always innovate. So staff are very busy maintaining what they've been doing. And it's important as a leader to provide a vision and to execute towards, I think, a good future. You talked about, you know, having to change or alter your approach, uh, depending upon the situation. Can you tell any stories of where you had to learn the hard way and you had to alter your approach to lead through a situation? Yeah, certainly. Uh, You know, I'm a One of those young guys when I was coming up, I always thought it was really about uh, getting the work done. And I thought that the right idea would always win over everybody's minds. And honestly, it's just not so. Quite often when you're working with somebody, I remember having a subordinate, I created a very clear list of goals, a very clear list of tasks. And I just knew that we were all going to be going and rowing in the right direction. I remember subordinate was constantly having issues with it. And from my perspective, I just felt like maybe they just didn't grasp it or understanding it. It didn't take long for me to dig a little deeper. And once I started asking questions to really realize they were completely not on board or do they even understand what I was intending on trying to do with those tasks that I was assigning them to. And then I realized that I failed as a supervisor. They didn't even understand the context of what I was trying to accomplish. So it may have been, quote unquote, the brightest idea, but without a real good understanding and without them buying into that bright idea, there was no way I was going to get compliance and no way we were going to achieve our goals. So you've probably uh, worked with many leaders in your, in your career. Um, any great leaders that come to mind that you learned, you know, life lessons from? Yeah. It, I've worked with some pretty impressive people. Quite honestly, some of the greatest things I learned was early in my career. I remember I worked for a manager at airports at LAX. Her name was Deborah Grant. And one of the most interesting things I learned from her, because she was a person who, like all of us, had her faults. You know how it is. You always think you're smarter than a boss. And, and, I, and honestly, I think everyone thinks about their boss in some way, shape, or form. But I remember her showing something that really blew my mind. And it was the importance of marketing and flair. 
I remember we were doing a training and we had something like 350 people coming to this very large facility. And she kept talking about giving everyone a ticket and the ticket would say admit one. And she kept talking about this ticket. And I remember saying to myself, why does she keep talking about this ticket? And lo and behold, come the day of the training and 300 plus folks are showing up. All sorts of people brought their tickets and were excited simply to have the opportunity of taking a physical ticket and submitting it to get in. There was a, a level of marketing she brought into it that I didn't even really appreciate. I just thought we were training people. Little did I realize that we were actually creating an experience, and she understood that where I didn't. Or another great leader was Eileen Yoshimura, who I worked for, and she really seemed to influence us around the importance of ethics and ensuring everyone was heard. You know, once again, you're, you're sensing the trend here. When I was younger, I, like I said, I was passionate. I had strong opinions, but I really wasn't realizing that to be a great leader, you've really got to bring people along. And so her desire to reach out and speak with every individual regarding the direction of this big financial system and where it was going to go and what we thought should happen with it, it really created a lot of buy-in so that when she made a decision, I think we all felt like we were taken into account for the decision that was made. I also have, if you're interested, Aileen, an example in a terrible leader. Sure. <laughs> okay. I won't name any names of this person, but I once had a boss who wanted me to sit across, because honestly, you can learn good things and you can learn what not to do from some of your supervisors. But I had a boss who would make me sit across from her desk. So as I was learning and growing, I couldn't sit in my office. I had to sit across the desk at her office. And I had to eat there. I had to take notes. I, it feels very hard to get work done. She would assign me work. And I think the expectation is my job to do it after hours or before hours. So I think that was part of her mindset of what she was trying to teach me. It really came to a, a, a really a grinding halt when I asked to use the restroom. Yes, I had to ask to use the restroom. And when I was in the restroom, I heard over the intercom, Ted Ross, could you please return back to my office? And that's when I really learned how people do not appreciate being devalued as an employee. And that even though she probably, and she had been in this position for 15 plus years. So she was obviously successful to some degree, but the importance of treating people with respect and dignity and treating them the way you would wish to be treated, I'd say. And just the simple idea of being in a restroom and hearing my name called over an intercom and having to report back to this boss, it taught me something of what not to do. You're listening to Leaders in Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Ted Ross, General Manager and CIO for the City of Los Angeles. Ted, you've had some obstacles and challenges that you've encountered um, at a personal level or within your career. What kind of leadership principles do you use to overcome in order to become a more effective leader in those types of situations? Sure. You know, I think there's a lot to be learned uh, by leaders. Even if you consider yourself a great leader, there's still a lot that you can learn. So I think a good dose of humility is important. Um, I've had at times, you know, one thing I did not like about becoming CIO is I stopped being Ted and I became Sir in the elevator. And while I don't mind being called Sir and people giving me a certain level of respect, I feel like quite what often quite happens, they start distancing themselves from me. And I think to be a great leader, I don't want to be distant. I want to understand where they're at. I want to be able to help lead. And I don't want to be segmented off to a corner office or an ivory tower and just considered sir. So I think a good dose of humility has always helped me out 
I laugh at myself. I, um, but at the same time, I do expect respect and I expect us to be able to go forward. So that's an important one. I think, of course, the ability to delegate. No one leader can accomplish everything. For crying out loud, we live in such a busy era, a digital era, era in which we have to be almost AI ourselves to simply keep up with what's going on in the office. So our ability to delegate, I think, is extremely important. I was project manager on a $55 million ERP project once, and one April I found myself taking one of those few vacations I rarely did, and it was an international trip to Thailand with my family. And I realized that as the flight was getting ready to leave, I spent the entire time before boarding the plane, making phone calls, checking email, putting out fires, editing documents, et cetera. And it didn't take me long to realize that my subordinates were not doing the same for their vacations. (laughs) And so I realized the importance of spreading the work out, holding people accountable, but also giving them the skills and trusting in the decisions that they had to make because no one person can keep the world afloat. So do you think there's a big difference between management and leadership? I, I hear a theme here on, on what you're talking about there. Can you tell me what your thoughts are on that? Yeah, yeah it's a really great question. I, I often, you know, I, I'm, I'm old school. I often thought of leaders as visionaries in many ways, and they can help set strategic goals and visions. I often think as managers, as executing towards that goal and helping teams accomplish that goal. And I think sometimes when people think of it, they say, well, I'd rather be the visionary than the manager. Well, I work in government and there's a lot of great visions for what government should be doing, but there's not a lot of great managers who can get government to execute towards those goals. So I wouldn't prefer one over the other. Honestly, you have to have both. And I think a great leader can perform both. They can both manage a team and they can help set the vision. But no one is Superman, no one is Superwoman. So I think organizations need a mix of these folks, good visionaries who can identify excellent directions for where to go, but then great managers who can help an organization get towards that goal. Because an idea without execution is just a concept. I'm speaking with Ted Ross, General Manager and CIO for the City of Los Angeles. After the break, we'll discuss leadership, decision-making, and communication, and why it's important to have the right combination. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Ted Ross, General Manager and CIO of the City of Los Angeles. So, Ted, what do you believe is the relationship between leadership and culture? I, I get a very strong vibe that you develop a very, well, I, I would have to almost say cool culture when I was in your office with, with your team. So tell me a little bit about that. I, I appreciate it. This question really feels like the Achilles heel of government. You know, in nowhere is leadership more important than in our government, where we make such important decisions almost every day. But also, historically, government culture is known to be some of the worst, you know, when it comes to comparing with private sector, nonprofits, etc. So this is an extremely important conversation. And as Peter Drucker, I believe, used to say, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So culture has a huge role in any organization. Honestly, if culture is the set of values, the beliefs, the behaviors of an organization, then I feel leadership either is reinforcing the existing culture or is in the process of changing that culture for better or for worse. 
So if you, let's say, have a good culture, then it requires leadership to maintain it. If you have a bad culture, then it requires tremendous leadership to help change it. And they may even have organizations that have a good culture, but they have leaders who are actually worsening the culture. So leadership has, I think, a tremendous responsibility of promoting an effective culture. So it's not just, it, we want to have one in which it's cool, it's relaxing, people want to go to work, people want to engage. That's extremely important, but also an effective one. People want to be, feel like they're contributing, that they're doing a good job. And it's got to be a culture that to other management or to our elected officials is a culture of success. One in which you are delivering on what you promise, you're able to deliver it on time or under budget, or you're able to make the right adjustments. So, so I think culture is an extremely important part of leadership. And honestly, as IT management, culture is one of the hardest things for us to wrap our minds around and really make a change because I think we just don't traditionally have that skill set. So we're always working on it. You've had decades of experience in the tech industry and government service. Over the last decade, the technology landscape has drastically changed with the uh, coming on of uh, 5G, uh, AI and ML, uh, quantum. How do you believe this technology advances will change our lives, especially in the role of government? Um, how will government take advantage of these technology yeah, advances? I, I'm a huge fan of innovation and new technology. And I think we all can appreciate every, for every new technology, there's a new toolbox, you know, a new tool, excuse me, in the toolbox. And it gives us an opportunity to do something either unimaginable before or to completely transform the relationship we have with our constituents. So there's, or to simply be much more efficient and to save resources towards other priorities. So there's so many great things you can do with new technology and digital transformation. And I think in its essence, really what it will do is it will bring the right kinds of information. So A, it'll pr bring us information that we maybe never had before, which gives us intelligence. B, it gets that information to the right person where they need it, when they need it. And I think C, it gets them in the right platform that they prefer. So it makes it consumable for that person. And if you do this across an entire organization, I've got a city in which we have over 50,000 employees. So if you could imagine 50,000 employees who have information when they need it, where they need it on the platform that they require, that is going to have a tremendous effect on what we do, how we do, when we do it. And of course, results in satisfaction among our customers. I think a great example, I, was, I received a phone call a couple of years ago from the mayor himself, uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti, and it was around 6 p.m. And when I got that call, he said, Ted, listen, we have to evacuate over 250,000 Angelinos due to multi-station fires that were occurring in Los Angeles. And he says, I need you to get the word out for where the evacuation area is. And I said, no problem, Mr. Mayor, I know exactly what to do. Fortunately, we were discussing the use of Google crisis maps for the last you know, three or four months before that. We were able to put a simple map, simple map, that the mayor published over Twitter. The uh, local media stations picked it up. And if you can imagine a simple Google map that you could launch on your phone, it clearly shows where you are, where the evacuation area is, et cetera, had 3.5 million views in 36 hours. Now, there's nothing that government does, at least that I'm familiar with, that gets these kinds of views this fast. And it was simply getting the information that people wanted to know because everyone was watching these fires, getting it to them on a platform they could consume like Google Maps and sending it out through social media. Tremendous effect. That one taught me very clearly the importance of bringing it that way. And I think, honestly, to your question, the biggest disruptor, in my opinion, will be artificial intelligence. 
I'll never forget reading Machine Platform Crowd. I thought it was a great read. But it used to discuss this idea that we used to think of machines as crunching numbers, but humans as doing the thinking. But very quickly, we started to see areas in which the machines, the computers could actually do the better thinking than the humans. And that's a crazy thing I just said, right? That is, that is blasphemous to say that a computer can outthink a human being. But we've seen it in complex games like chess and Go, and we're seeing in other areas that if built right and if managed right, machines can actually be better than human beings in certain decision-making. And I think we're going to start to see that with AI. Of course, there's a lot around privacy, ethics, et cetera, that has to be done before we get to that state. New technologies bring on new challenges, as you just stated, and new opportunities. Uh, AI and ML can change about just about every aspect of our lives when you really think about it, even just the way that uh, you walk into a McDonald's and, and the way that the, the menu is presented. So um, how is artificial intelligence going to affect the workforce or the way cities like L.A. will get their mission done? You, you know, and. And we'll we'll talk about ethics in a minute, but sure. how do you believe that this will really change the dynamics of the services that you could deliver to the constituents? The the L.A. map fires, which, by the way, I was there then, and thank you for putting that out there because it was complete chaos, and that map really helped people understand where and what to do. And if you could imagine that map is effectively free. We simply use Google Maps to do it. I didn't have to find millions of dollars to, to produce that. But to your point, I think AI and machine learning are affecting the workforce to what I was describing before of not just providing tools for humans to use, but actually helping humans make those decisions or even making those decisions if done right for humans themselves and allowing humans to have a review process or to be able to override, et cetera. I'll never forget, you know, we implemented something we call CHIP. It's the City Hall Internet Personality, and it's a chatbot. You know, business is an extremely important value for the city of Los Angeles and the business community is important. So, and we know that contracting is very complicated in any large government. So we were offered by Microsoft at the time to send out a programmer to do some training. Of course, training budget's always low. So we actually required two programmers to share a hotel room together, which they more, more than willingly did so. So we sent them out and after about three days of training, we were able to have a working chatbot. We started to build a little bit, but really what CHIP provides is across our website and various key apps. It's an anytime, anywhere resource powered by AI and machine learning that we continue to train and learn as it's interacting with people. When we launched it, we had 180 questions in the first 24 hours and we didn't even advertise it. And when we launched it, the questions were not just about business and contracting, which is the site it was launched on. It was also questions about paying parking tickets, et cetera. And Aileen, we were getting questions at 3 a.m. That's not a customer base I typically think of catering to. But now I've got artificial intelligence answering questions at 3 a.m. because someone's asking it regarding parking tickets on a website that has nothing to do with parking tickets. 13,000 questions later, CHIP was transformational. It provided immediate answers for the business community. It helped us with limited staffing. We had 70% reduction in staff questions simply because CHIP the chatbot was answering those questions and allowed staff to handle the more complex questions, which by the way, they were tired of answering the same old questions over and over again, and they liked the fact that CHIP can handle it. So improving staff morale, creating a 24 by seven presence, you know, and making life better for the staff have to support and maintain it. I think we're going to see a lot of this with artificial intelligence coming up. 
that's exciting. Um, there's another side to AI and ML. And, and what, ad, as we prepared for the show and we were able to chat, you brought up uh, that you felt there was a need for a responsible and ethical evolution of technologies. I think those were your words. Yeah. That will transform the way we work and the really society. What, why do you think technology leaders need to care about the ethical computing and responsibility to customers and constituents around utilizing AI and ML? Sure. Los Angeles is over 230 years old. Obviously, 230 years ago, the city didn't look like the way it does. But LA has been instituting innovation in our growing urban environment for over 200 years. You know, traffic lights at the time were a tremendous innovation. The automobile was an innovation. What's different is that we live in a digital age and these innovations are coming in rapidly. You know, every year there's something tremendously new and exciting that seems to be popping up. But what we're finding for our constituents is innovation is not enough. They're not just looking to me to find that latest thing and to try to implement it as a government service. As Americans have become increasingly digital, they've also become increasingly distrustful of digital technology. You can even see it in things like media. You look at shows like Black Mirror or even Loki that come out just recently. These shows do not paint a, a trusting vision of technology. Even looking at it, Oxford Dictionary published the word techlash, right? The technology backlash. So government needs to not just create innovative technology, but has to have ethical te technology around it. So what we are doing at the city of Los Angeles is we're creating a digital code of ethics that articulates our ethical standards and policies in the use of technology. It's guidance to every city department. It allows us to take a set of ethics and policies and standards and apply that in the technology we do. We know that trust is hard to build and easy to lose. So we've been working very aggressively, even though I'm an IT manager by trade, working to understand ethics, understand our customers, so that the tools that we implement are effectively under the consent of the government. I'm speaking with Ted Ross, General Manager and CIO of the City of Los Angeles. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader in trying to lead through change and navigate with this new technology ethics landscape. You're listening to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Ted Ross, General Manager and CIO for the City of Los Angeles. So, Ted, how should executives and managers answer the ethical questions about computing and artificial intelligence? You talked about, you actually said, trust is a hard thing to build, but an easy thing to lose. People are definitely at a point right now where, you know, even getting vaccinated was being questioned as to whether it had some plot behind it. Um, so how do you, what questions should they be asking themselves? How should they leverage these advances, but still navigate this new landscape? Certainly, it's such an important question. You know, it used to be a time where people could get together for a town hall meeting in Los Angeles to get together or a series of town hall meetings. They could meet their elected leaders, they could discuss the topic. With over 4 million people in Los Angeles, there's no town halls. You know, we can fill Staples Center or the new SoFi Stadium, you know, 100 times over and not get enough people to be able to interact with an elected official. But what they are doing is they're interacting with us digitally, right? That is the, the medium with which that they're interacting with us. And they're not just interacting over social media, but they're doing it through the news media. They're doing it through social media. They're doing it through television. There's a long list of ways that they interact with us technically. And so... 
ethics becomes this fundamental of how do I interact with you? What are your expectations and what can you trust in us or rely on us when it comes to the use of technology? And I'd say, first of all, what we've learned in LA is to set roles. Number one, you've got to set roles. I'm an IT manager. I couldn't think to give an ethics course. You know, it's not my training, not my background. I have to, you know, I'm an amateur ethicist. I have to learn it and try to develop it so I could apply on my work. So what we found is that the LA residents and their advocacy groups play a key role. Their role is to understand their digital rights and their role is to escalate their concerns about technology. The second group are our elected officials. Their role is to develop and enforce policies for the ethical use and to listen and to respond to the concerns of LA residents. The third role is LA city managers. They have to evaluate ethical consequences when choosing technology platforms. They need to establish preventive measures to avoid digital ethics violations that folks like myself can help identify. Then, of course, you have folks like the technology vendors themselves. These are the ones who are often implementing the very solutions we're describing. If a vendor knows what your ethics are, then they can help you stay in line with them. It's really as simple as that. So they can help us build and deploy ethical technology, as well as look for opportunities to even advance themselves to to sell products to help even build that out. So first is to establish a role. Second is to establish those common values. It's way beyond just complying with federal and state laws. We had to build, establish some basic fundamental values. Uh, You know, one of them is to be human centric. So the technology we deliver is always human centric. You know, a second one comes around it being equitable. The third is transparency. The fourth is security. And the fifth is sustainability. And so these are five core values on the decisions we make and the technologies we implement. And once we've established, I think, those core values, we then need to build our policies and standards around it. And that gets much more specific, and it depends on the organization itself. But the ones to look out for most are emerging technologies. You know, I'll never forget in college learning about how many decades it took for the Supreme Court to figure out telephones and wiretapping and to create case law around it. Oh, well, you look now, you've got technologies that people don't even grasp. And they're being implemented every year. So we don't have decades to figure out how to apply ethics and standards. We have to move a little faster and establish standards, but especially on emerging technologies of facial recognition and on drones, et cetera. Those are the key areas in which our ethics are being challenged. And we need to make sure we establish what our standards are. And and then, of course, iterate when required. So data plays a big role surrounding this ethics landscape. Um, every government organization has information on its citizens. Um, matter of fact, Google has a ton of information on every citizen. You know, Microsoft does. Um, what are your thoughts on data and protecting the privacy of the citizens of LA in this area? And, and also as a side point, any of the listeners out there, any advice about how to be smart about you know, uh, you know, representing themselves. You, I love the way you laid it out. You said the first person is a responsibility is the citizen themselves. Yep, it is. Um, you know, I, I look young, but I'm very much a digital immigrant. I remember the world before the internet, you know, world in which papers were, t- you know, handwritten or typed up and submitted, et cetera. And so I still am a firm believer that you don't put something online that you don't want everyone to know. Um, It's an old fashioned concept. And I know most of our young folks don't even grasp what I'm describing, but I think it's extremely important. It's still a platform in which you can, it could be easily distributed and easily get into the wrong hands. 
Um, when it comes to the city of Los Angeles, you know, we do not sell personal data. The data we gather has to be for the purpose of improving our own services, first and foremost. So we're actually stewards of the data that we gather. It needs to be uh, secured according to our information security policy. The vendors that we work with cannot sell it without consent. So there's a whole list of things that we have as rules regarding our data. Uh, part of that data is your location. We feel that location is fundamental to your privacy. So the records of where you are is fundamental to your right to privacy. That's a statement we're taking, regardless of what any law says. So location data is secured and anonymized whenever feasible. We do not want to track information about you unless we absolutely have to. The only example, that a real good example had to do with location was our Shake Alert LA app in which we were actually warning people of a coming earthquake. And we had to have anonymized data so that we could tell you about how many seconds away the shaking would be. Uh, and, to, and the steps we took is that it was fully anonymized. We didn't know who you were when we had that information. We just had a vague idea of where you were. We rewrote over that data so that we didn't track historically. And on top of that, um, that information would get wiped out. And so it was just a list of, of steps we took because we made privacy a fundamental responsibility of a very cool, innovative app. Getting organizations to adopt change are always one of the biggest leadership challenges. How do you approach leading an organization to adopt major change? I mean, you're, you're talking about some very big major changes about how to approach writing these applications, for an example, you know, or surrounding some of these ethics issues. So how do you, how do you get an organization to adopt change? What's your leadership style? I think there's a lot of really good writings out there. I'm a huge fan of John Cotter. Um, you know, when it comes to introducing change and organizational change in organization. But if I were to try to say something that I've just learned, if I were to try to summarize it into one sentence, in your organization, you need to know where the power is and how to influence it. It's as simple as that. Where is the power and how do you influence it? You know, I often get told, hey, Ted, you know, if you really want to make something successful, you need top-down leadership. In some organizations, yes, but in many others, no. Quite often in government, power is not top-down. I remember when I was implementing that $55 million financial system, I remember people saying, well, if you can get the department heads on board, you'll be successful. But I knew that whenever anything happened in accounting or finance, they looked at the chief accounting employee and says, what do you think of it? So I knew that it was the chief accounting employees of every department was where the power was held. And you have to understand your organization well enough to do that because a department head didn't know enough about that topic and they were relying on someone else. So if you won over the chief accounting employee, you went over the department. And I think for any change, if you kind of sit down and break it down, you can figure out where the power is and then apply the best methods to influence that power. That's some great advice. The city of LA faced some huge challenges since your tenure as CIO. I mean, you, you spoke about the fires. Uh, now you're coming out of, or hopefully coming out of COVID. What is some of the most proud um, things that you were able to accomplish as the CIO of the city of Los Angeles? There are so many things I'm proud of. Um, and so I try to use things like my Twitter account or I keep a log so I can remember just all the great things my staff have been able to accomplish. Our finest hour, probably my entire career would be COVID response. You know, easily our finest hour. I'll never forget basically, you know, getting an announcement on March 19th of 2020 that we were going to move to full-time telework. 
an organization that had 35 teleworkers before that announcement, and we had to get us up to 18,173. And I couldn't be more proud that we had 10,000 teleworkers within 72 hours because we knew it was coming. We already built out the platform and we were already practicing on it with some of my own staff. Or the idea of getting a phone call on a Friday night from a deputy mayor saying on Sunday, we would need to announce a COVID testing app. Uh, and this was very early on in the COVID, uh, COVID pandemic before people were really testing. Within 72 hours, we had that app up and running. Fantastic. The mayor announced it on a Sunday and within, 60, 000, within four weeks of that, we had 60,000 COVID tests. These are medical workers, Uber drivers, you know, restaurant workers, key people early on in that pandemic. You know, after that, we had million plus tests. We had large numbers of vaccinations. But those early efforts or things like rent relief, you know, if you can imagine so many people were devastated by COVID economically and our ability to deliver over $105 million in rent relief early in the pandemic to which we had over 221,000 applicants for that money and have an app up and running that's testable. You can audit, you know, it identifies who the winners are and in a contactless way, it pairs the recipients with their landlords and it does so without stepping foot in one government facility. These were true digital services delivered in a contactless way that really saved people's lives and, 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 and saved their ability to simply be sheltered. Uh, and I couldn't be any more proud of the work that my staff, as well as other city leaders, performed during that time. You're listening to Leaders in Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking to Ted Ross, General Manager and CIO of the City of Los Angeles. Next, we'll find out Ted's advice to the next generation of city leaders. You're listening to Leaders in Legend in Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Ted Ross, General Manager and CIO of the City of Los Angeles. Ted, the, the Biden administration clearly wants to keep America in the lead for innovation and technology. The Senate just passed a $1 trillion infrastructure bill. Does the City of Los Angeles have any plans to pursue this money and improve its technology or services? Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's many areas in which it doesn't have a high price tag to innovate. There's great digital services, websites, mobile apps that really don't take a lot of investment to deliver really great things. But infrastructure is one of those areas where it does really cost money. And if you're going to deliver next generation infrastructure, you've got to make the right kinds of investments. I think areas like digital inclusion are, are an incredibly important one. We're looking at the ability of key portions of our demographics, key portions of our communities, and their ability to compete in the digital economy without readily easy access to internet, without high-speed internet, without the kinds of digital skills and training required for them to establish a business, market an existing business, apply for jobs, et cetera, we risk an entire group of our society not competing. And so I think digital inclusion and connectivity is probably at the top of that list. But there's other areas, too, where we want to help modernize our network infrastructure, our access to the cloud, 5G. You name the topic, there's a lot of really key areas that we're planning and working to pursue to improve how we as a region compete in this modern era. Can you describe your career path? I was looked at your LinkedIn profile. You started out in accounting, I think, and yes, now you're the CIO of the city of Los Angeles. That's a huge job. Um, it, ha it doesn't look like a straight line. I know, I know. Well, it, it is when you'll hear this story. So 
My dad was an aerospace engineer for 25 years. He worked for Aerospace Corporation. Brilliant man, a rocket scientist. You know, not many people could say that, um, but he was truly a rocket scientist. And he did so much work down there in El Segundo. And us sons, I'm the youngest of, of three brothers, us sons all wanted to be engineers. But coming towards the end, I said to myself, you know what? I don't think I want to be an engineer. I don't want to be in technology. I think I want to get into something more in lines with business management. And so I went into accounting and I loved accounting and I liked what business operations and business management could provide. But before you know it, you know, I spent time working in private sector. I joined government after 9-11. That was very important to me. And before you know it, I ended up in accounting systems and then I ended up in the IT department. And so next thing you know, I am now running technology at the city of Los Angeles I think my same passion that I had for business management and business operations shows itself in technology. I remember as a young man having a Timex Sinclair T1000. I had a Commodore VIC-20, IBM 286. I grew up with technology. I kind of was the black sheep for not getting into technology, only to eventually become the most corporate technologist in the family. The rest work in tech and all these other areas, but I ended up becoming the most tech in some ways uh, simply by becoming uh, getting into this path. So that's kind of how I ended up here. I can definitely feel your passion for helping the citizens of L.A. You brought up 9-11. Was that how was that a turning point for you to be a public servant? I mean, you could work anywhere and probably make a lot more money in private sector. But clearly your passion for helping the citizens of L.A. it, It shows. I, I th- good question. I think motivation and passion are extremely important. If you, you know, if you're not passionate about what you do, then every day is going to be miserable. Uh, so it's really important to be passionate about what you do. And I know that can be taken a certain way. I've got two daughters and we're always having this conversation of, listen, sweetheart, it's not, you're not always going to do what you like, but it should be something you're passionate or have an interest in and you could really excel at it. And so for me, it was a passion to try to serve. You know, I, when I was young, I almost joined the military, but I met my now wife, you know, early on in high school and I wasn't going to leave for that. And so when 9-11 happened, I really felt it was important to not just do what I was doing in private sector, but try to contribute in government. And lo and behold, it's about 20 years later now. And so, in fact, it will be 20 years and, and you know, very soon. And I just think it's really important to have something that motivates you and it helps you be good at it. If you really aren't interested in what you do, it's always going to be hard to succeed. So what's next for Ted Ross? It's a really great question. You know, I'm at... Uh, I'm at uh, the top. The, the, I'm at a top IT leadership position in one of the top cities in the United States. Uh, probably for me, I'll continue to work in civil service, or I should say, continue to work serving uh, the people of Los Angeles. But I, you know, I'll always have an itch. I'll probably look at some point to move back into private sector. But for now, I really am motivated. COVID is kind of, you know, re-engaged uh, me and reinvested, you know, what it means to be government and government IT at such an important time and who we serve. But, you know, who knows, maybe after we stabilize this, there's opportunities in private sector and consulting. I, I know there's a lot of good opportunities out there for people. Well, you, you have a very interesting vantage point to see about what technology and what ne- next new hot careers are out there. So any advice for anybody who's just starting out uh, to pursue a, a technology career? You know what? Sometimes I'm old school. Uh, maybe it comes from having a dad who was older. My dad, believe it or not, served in World War II. So I was the youngest of four. Um, and I think sometimes old wisdom is, is the best wisdom, even if it takes a little bit of a different sheen because we're in modern times. For me, you know, if someone's interested in a job, especially in a tech job, 
it's a really simple concept. Find out what people are willing to pay for and get the skills and abilities in that area. It's a simple capitalism conversation. If you want to be successful, there's all these businesses who have all these challenges. There's all these governments who have all these challenges, and they're looking for a bright person to help them with those challenges. So if you can have the kinds of skills, maybe it's in data science, or maybe it's in cybersecurity, maybe it's in management, maybe it's in you know, development and programming or configuring ERP systems. There's so many areas where businesses have a need. Your ability to meet those needs and to excel in that, you'll always be super successful. Ted, do you think we're investing enough in education to grow the tech force we need for tomorrow with all these new technologies being able to be implemented um, and really deliver some huge impact? Your advice to somebody was to just have the simple capitalism question. You know, somebody has a need, they have a problem, go get the skills. But how do they get those skills? Do you think we're investing enough in in tomorrow's uh, workforce to, to meet those needs? No, I don't. We, it starts with education, especially in something as complicated as technology. Your ability to be able to have the right kinds of skills and then build that kind of experience in that area starts with your ability to get educated in those topics, especially when you look at something like technology. You know, I'm always reminded of just how important the foundation is when I look at a computer science degree. You would have thought that you just start off with coding. No, you start off with learning physics and calculus and logic and a long list of topics that you think have nothing to do with computer science, and yet they have everything to do with computer science. And the purpose is to build a broad base. So whether you're someone who's building technology or you're managing technologists, it's important to have a broad base that understands the past, understands the present, understands the future of where we're going. So I think education to grow our tech workforce is extremely important. And as a nation, I think we need to continue what we're doing, but expand on it because it is going to be our competitive edge as these technologies continue to give us new ways to innovate. Your career and success, you've truly inspirational. Um, Any pearls of wisdoms you'd have for that next generation? You said you had uh, any advice you give your daughters? Yes. Uh, Here's a good piece of advice I learned from a council member named Michael Wu. Uh, His advice was this, watch out what you say in the elevators. (laughs) <laughs> Watch out. you'd be surprised the terrible things people have said in crowded elevators not realizing all the people who are listening in on it so uh, i know during covid that might seem a little strange because most of our elevators are pretty empty um but watch out what you say in elevators you've been listening to leaders and legend in government my guest today has been ted ross ted first i want to just thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some very seriously good advice Thank you so much. Absolutely been my pleasure. Great chatting with you, Lean. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. place you've always wanted to try while you're there sharing plates with just one bite or on second thought maybe not sharing it's that good when you're with amex it's not if it's going to happen but when american express don't live life without it